Ride List. Download the Ride List app on your iPhone. Swap, buy, or sell Ride List. I've got something rather interesting I'd like to share with you. A VIP dinner with Wayne Lynch. Friday, May 3rd, 7 p.m. There are seven VIP tickets available for an intimate dinner with Australian surfing legend Wayne Lynch. Enjoy a unique evening with Wayne and your friends. The dinner takes place at Ranch 45. And Chef Pam at Ranch 45 is preparing a special three-course dinner for eight people. And that includes Wayne. So it's Wayne plus seven. Your once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to spend quality time with Wayne Lynch appetizers, live music, beer and wine, and then sitting down for an incredible three-course meal, an amazing meal prepared by, as I mentioned, Chef Pam Schwartz at Ranch 45 in Del Mar, California. Appetizer, salad, a fish, meat, or vegan course, dessert, beer and wine. In addition, a goodie bag, including two weekend passes to the boardroom show, a boardroom show hat, plus some other cool stuff, but perhaps more importantly, each of the seven VIP diners will take home one of the shaped blanks from round one of the Icons of Foam shaping competition honoring Wayne Lynch. Only seven tickets available, you, six others, perhaps a friend or a spouse, and Wayne Lynch. Tickets for this pretty cool opportunity are available now. Go to boardroomshow.com and click on the Buy Tickets link at the top of the page boardroomshow.com. Click on the buy tickets link at the top of the page and you will see the opportunity to dine with Wayne Lynch and get one of those shaped blanks from the competition. In addition, the boardroom show May 4th and 5th at the Delmar Fairgrounds. Don't miss out on the boardroom surfboard show party at the Delmar Plaza Friday evening from 6.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Right above 15th Street, overlooking the ocean, slideshows by Don Balch, Steve Sherman, and the Follow the Light Foundation, along with live music by Tower 7 and video edits from Dana Brown's new film, The Life of Endless Summers, about his legendary father, Bruce Brown, and a video edit from Spoons, A Santa Barbara Story which is an incredible movie. Greeno, Yader, Al Merrick, and the whole Santa Barbara region and its influence on surfboard design. And of course, Saturday and Sunday, the Icons of Fun tribute to the Master Shaping Competition honoring Wayne Lynch. Also, the Douglas Surf Products laminating demos featuring Mike Delaney and friends from Pure Glass in Costa Mesa. The California Gold Surf Auction, vintage Lots, memorabilia, incredible surfboards on the auction block. We're giving away $1,000 to the board builder that wins Best in Show. The criteria this year, a two plus one surfboard with channels, also known as the Widowmaker. Two plus one with channels. Those are the criteria. Anybody can enter Best in Show. We're giving away $1,000 for a first prize, along with a free booth at next year's boardroom show and $1,200 in Zio Baffa Organic Wines. Best in show presented by Zio Baffa Organic Wines. We've also got six engaging panels, a Q&A with Wayne Lynch, 
Big Wave Bravado, the WOSL, What's Next, the West Coast Board Riders Club, The Future is Local, Shaping the Industry, and one or two others that we're working on now. These panels being moderated by Chris Morrow from the People Who Surf podcast. I urge you to go check out Chris's podcast, People Who Surf. And live music at the boardroom show, Tower 7 and Hold Fast. And of course, our demo morning, 15th Street Reef, Del Mar, presented by Sustainable Surf. Sunday morning, 15th Street, 7 a.m. to 10 a.m., the boardroom demo morning. And if you're into swapping vintage boards, there's the Vintage Surfboard Collectors Club swap outside of the boardroom show. Ukuleles and guitars on display as well. And great deals on custom surfboards, fins, wetsuits, skateboards, gear, and art. Now, at the end of this podcast, I've tacked on a legacy interview from September 5th, 2010. This is an interview that Jeff Baldwin and I did with JS, Jason Stevenson from JS Surfboards in Australia. This is uh, during our days with Down the Line Surf Talk on terrestrial radio in San Diego on Extra Sports 1360. So make sure you stay tuned for that after the music. There was always this one guy, one inquisitive guy. He would watch. He would observe. He would study the shapers in the shaping room in those early years of sacred craft. Although perhaps his gaze was to learn, it looked to me like it was also to approve of what was taking place, like a sensei. His focus at each shaping exhibition purposeful, with an eye for details, fine details the type of details that only a craftsman would understand and process. Eventually, we met and became acquainted. Of course, I had no way of knowing then that the craftsman I speak of was the spirited adventurer who respectfully defaced one of the world's most famous landmarks. Not once, mind you, no. This man scrambled up that hill and down that hill four times. What landmark, you ask? What hill, you ask? What craftsman? The Boardroom Podcast with Steve Brom. Let us begin. I have, yeah. Welcome to the Boardroom Podcast, Steve Brom from Goleta, Santa Barbara. Good to see you, Steve. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, when was the last time you pulled weeds? Which kind? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> weeds. Uh, I haven't pulled weeds. Yeah, I did. As a matter of fact, some of the extra rain we've had just recently got some weeds that were in the pathway out of control, so I did have to pull some weeds. All right. Fair enough. Just recently. Okay. Are you a gardener? No, no, not really. No. 
You might need you to get a little closer to that thing. Okay, I'm getting a little. Are you comfortable? Yeah, fine. All right. Um, well, you're well known for your twin fin surfboards, right? I am. Does um, pigeon hold comes to mind? I was gonna. Say, that's kind of what I was getting at. Does it feel? Um, are you okay with that? I mean, you've been building surfboards, twin fins. Since when, 1970 or yeah, earlier? Yeah, at least 70, even before there was such a thing as a split tail. So tell me a little bit about your early twin fin craftsmanship days. Well, those were days when the boards looked a little bit more like a mini Simmons as we know it. And in those days, we were experimenting with putting fin boxes in the corners of those tails. They were towed in and actually with some V in the bottom, which was proving effective as a focal point in rail-to-rail transition. The fin boxes, they were put in flush to the surface of the bottom, but they ended up canting the fins out. So the, the boxes were towed in, but in those days, the mentality hadn't grown to the point of a single-foiled fin. In those days, those were those early small Bane boxes that had the small injection-molded plastic fins that were foiled both sides. Yeah. But they worked well, and they were so small. I think my first one was like a 5.7, and the next one was a a 5.3. And I learned so much from riding those boards, and particularly one moment comes to mind at Solano Beach where I was experimenting with the 5.3, and I lost it. I should have been in the water on on my head, but I just stuck with it as long as I could. The board spun around under me, turned back around, and I was back in the back in the wave again, and it was just a mind blowing experience in those days. You mentioned Solana Beach. Were you down? Were you making boards down in San Diego, or you just happened to be down there? Or? No, it was a probably a uh, just an excursion down there. We had a lot of fun taking trips and Solano Beach, walking down the ramp and to the left end of the cove. There, there was a nice left that uh, um, they used to nickname me Tommy Tube. Really. <laughs> You got a you got a nickname at Pillbox. I got a nickname, yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's go back a little bit. Um, where did you where did you grow up surfing? Like, what's your background? What, how old were you when you got your first board? All that stuff. I was fourteen, and those are the days when I lived with the folks in Hollywood. I grew up in Hollywood. That's where the family house was, and uh, we were located in a view of the Hollywood Hills. And I remember stripping down an old board that was in pieces at the beach into shaping it into a belly board in junior high school. So I was fairly handy with uh, wood tools in my hands and, and to love the beach. We would go to the beach with my mom regularly. And um, it was uh, always fun to do something out in the ocean other than body surfing. And what, what's the time frame? Like what years are we talking here? 67, mm-hmm. 68, 69. Yeah. Yeah. And what were the next steps for you as a teenager? I imagine some, at some point you got into a vehicle and, and you found your way where? Well, out to Salt Creek a lot. We would go, we, I was in Hollywood high school for all three years and I, uh, would, uh, I met up with a fellow named Clyde Beatty, who we're all familiar with his name in the surfing world. He and I became great friends, and we would go from the Hollywood area. He lived in the outskirts of Beverly Hills, and we would hook up and go down to Bay Street in Santa Monica and surf after school 
in mm-hmm. the the shore break stuff and the just the wishy washy crap, just crap. Yeah, and 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 so, how did you find your way down to Salt Creek? Because I know you had quite a um, a time run there at Salt Creek, right in Orange County. I did for sure. Yeah, yeah. Clyde and I would um, on on weekends we would hop in either my station wagon or his cool three eighty three Roadrunner and throw the boards on the top and the girlfriends in the back and go and spend the day down at Salt Creek from early until late. And those are the days when there was no Ritz Carlton. There were just nothing but flowers. And we'd park on the coast highway and race across the top and the sand was so soft and scamper down the sand on the first tier and then get to the edge of the, the cliff there and find our way down one of the crevices there down to the beach. And the sand was so clean it would squeak under your feet and the water was so clean with that pure sand that it was just such a joy on a glassy morning to uh, surf Salt Creek in the point there. Cool. That sounds pretty neat. It was like a home break. I, I, I later learned to uh, fly my hang glider off the uh, the cliff up above there where they now built the Ritz-Carlton. Yeah. Tell me about these hang gliding days. This sounds a little bit sketchy. I mean... Um... Were you a pioneer hang glider, or were other people hang gliding in, at Salt Creek, well, jumping no, off the cliff no, there? No, I never saw anybody before jump <laughs> was, off. Was so, that a red flag? So, no, it wasn't. I, just, I, I probably flew um, many times in the um, uh, hills in Laguna where I learned there was a group called the Bennett Brothers, and, and um, they had a delta wing, and you could see them if you were on your taking the shortcut to Crown Valley Parkway off the... 405, you could go down on any given weekend and see these people flying their hang gliders in this little sort of a soft hill. And uh, we just pulled over one day and I said, I got to go for this. And I ran up the hill and sat in line with the rest of the people there. Pretty, turn, pretty soon it was my turn. And uh, they strapped me into the swing seat and I'd watched enough people go out and listened to enough of the oratory to um, know what to do. And, and, um, uh, it was, and, and and so you you had a running start, uh, like a, a 10, 15-yard start to an end of a cliff, and then you just took the leap of faith? It was not a cliff in, in that particular circumstance, but it was a leap of faith because you were running down a hill with this child's swing seat, right. seat belted to your butt and your legs, and the next thing you know, with enough speed, they teach you to push this control bar farther out and it would raise the nose of the kite, and it would catch the wind, and then the wind would create the lift and the and the wing, and then they would tell you, if you don't remember anything else, as soon as you get the lift and your feet leave the ground, pull that control bar back into your, your gut a little bit, and you will start your glide parallel with the slope of the hill. And how was your first attempt? Successful and not memorable. Oh, you don't remember it, you mean? It was a phenomenon. I It was a strange sensation to not remember the flight. I made the flight. I didn't get hurt. I made the landing just perfectly. But the funny thing about that circumstance was I can remember sitting with the group of people that were up there. There happened to be a a couple young doctors, and they were both waiting to take their turns. And the one doctor that took the first flight of the two of them, after he landed and came back up the hill, his friend and I was sitting next to them, and I could hear his friend asked him, how was it? He goes, I don't remember. So 
do we attribute this to just some some incredible Zen moment where you were so you had to be so in tune with the moment? There was no opportunity for future thought or past thought to come into your to your psyche. Not that I know of. We just don't know why. We but there's a why. phenomenon of the first flight where, for whatever reason, probably fear. I don't know. Perhaps. But it was pushed deep within your memory. You don't remember. And validated with the, what the one doctor right. said to the other doctor. And, and how did your flight end? Does your flight end in you running it out? Or does it end you running into a hill? Like It does. It's at the bottom of this soft hill. And then the ground and the terrain flatten out. And as you are heading towards that, the other thing that you try and just with muscle memory and survival, push the nose of the kite back out a little bit so that it flares and stalls. And then you come and land down two, three feet off the the ground into a soft landing on your feet and then stick the nose down into the ground so that there's no more wind that gets up underneath it. And then strap yourself out of the seat and back yourself out. And this first flight that you don't remember must have been, it, it, it must have been enchanting or exciting enough for you to go, I'm hooked or I want to do this again, right? Like the exact word I was just thinking of. I was hooked. Yeah. It, it was a hook. I ended up buying my own glider from a company up in the Santa Monica area. They're called uh, Sea. It was a Seagull 3. And, um, uh, and we're talking like 1973 or something? What year are we talking here? We're talking about, yes, 1973. Good call. Mm-hmm. But I later learned to fly a lot of other places. I flew at Torrey Pines over Blacks and really? take off of a run off the cliff. That's, now a, big, that's now, a leap of faith. Now we're talking about a leap of faith. Is yeah. that the biggest leap of faith you ever took regarding the hang glider? Probably on a sheer cliff. But there, growing up in the Hollywood area, there we had the valley beyond us and yeah. the Silmar Hills was a long drive up to the top there. And you could go uh, up there with the rest of the group that was watching the wind on the on the, the socks and take off up there and then just circle around the ridge lines until the point where you almost just got tired wow. of, of flying. And then you'd land down at the bottom. Pe- people looked like ants. They were that far down in a way. Yeah. So you got really good at this, obviously. And, and, and there's a community. It sounds like there's a small little subculture, a community of flyers. Was it a big thing? How many people were were hang gliding in this in Southern California? Or yeah, I don't know. It was just a it was just a phenomenon, a fad. And if you were anxious to try it, it was there to do it. And um, I had a lot of fun for quite a long time. And and you did it. You did this at Salt Creek. I did it also at Salt Creek. Yeah, I used to fly at Scotchman's over there above the Laguna Cove there up towards uh, Scotchman's Cove, Scotchman's Cove up near um, um, the uh, what was the little cove uh, up there that um, had the old volleyball court and the, oh gosh, I can't think of the name of it. But anyway, Scotchman's Cove was just about a half a mile south of there. And that was a small cliff. So to get the experience of flying off of a cliff or taking that leap of faith, yeah. that was a place to do it. And it was a, it was a fun. And you knew that it was getting the updraft from the ocean yeah. at the cliff and nowhere to go but up. So you get into that and you could go up too and you could fly along there for as long as you could. And even the crows are out there having fun. I can remember watching a crow and two seagulls flying together and the crow flipped over 
and flew upside down. Wow. Yeah. That is cool. Yeah. How Amazing. Crazy is that? Yeah, good memory. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and were other surfers jumping off the cliff at Salt Creek with you and doing this I never, crazy new fad? No, I never saw anybody else do it. I did it a few times because we were going to run an ad when I was uh, shaping for Dino Surfboards. We were going to run a full-page ad that um, uh, the owner of the company, Dick Lippincott, had a Beechcraft Bonanza, and he had it uh, stored. And we'd fly out of Orange County periodically to go down to San Diego to see one of the dealers. And, and um, so flying was sort of in his blood. And when he heard that I was flying hang gliders, he said, you know, this is something that we ought to incorporate into an ad. And they ended up putting a full-page ad of me flying over a kind of a doctored wave underneath that looked like pipeline, but it was an effective looking ad. Cool. That's interesting. Yeah. So that shot was taken by Guy Motiel and of surfer fame, surfer magazine fame. And he was in a different angle on the cliff, but took a picture of me taking off from where I took off and then flying across the waterline. Well, you mentioned the dyno label um, and, and we, we touched a little bit on twin fins and, and your, your, early experience with them. And um, so how do we make the connection between your shaping, uh, your shaping twin fins, uh, those early kind of square tailed twin fins? What, where were you shaping those? Were you working with Dino at the time? Can you give me some insight on where your early experience with twin fins were? And then did that evolve into a job at, at Dino or like, give me some, I guess, backstory on your shaping history in that, in that period. Yeah. That period there was uh, connected to those twin fins based on, um, boards that were being built out of the garage in the Hollywood Hills. We had a garage in the Hollywood Hills there. My friend's mom had this beautiful three-tiered house, and it had a on the fourth ground level near the Hollywood Bowl, we had a um, a garage there that uh, my friend who lived there and I were making boards there. And did so, you have a label? Was it just Steve's surfboards, or do you guys just sew garage? And- prom surfboards. Prom. I sell boards out of... Uh, out of there to people in Hollywood High School and anybody else that would come up to me and say, you want to make a board? And yeah. so some of those first twin fins, I think I, I I learned early about the potential when the Hobie store on Wilshire Boulevard in Santa Monica, it was called Blue Cheer Hobie. They had the Hobie dealership. And they had, we'd go in there periodically just to see what was new coming up from the Hobie line and mentality and and they had some space sticks there that had the Corky Carroll space mm-hmm. stick label on there and they yeah. had these wide cornered tails and in the magazines there were some starting some ads of something like that but you know being a, a young poor kid it was the only thing to do was to try and get some cheap blank somewhere and uh, start shaping and maybe emulating something that you could see there and putting my own logic to it and, and uh, seeing how it would work to, for me and what I could learn from it. And like I say, I had this 5.7 that was a blast. And it got stolen off the top of the car there in front of that garage in the hills there. And then I made myself, okay, you know, the best idea, logical thinking is to go smaller. I could go smaller. So yeah. I made a 5.3, and I was I was pretty thin, lean, and yeah. skinny kid yeah. at the time, but... I took that 5.3 out many different places, and that one experience that I had at, at Solano Beach was just this one memorable wave taught me a ton of what the potential was here. And I personally never really went back to a single fan after that. Yeah. And 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 how did you make the jump to Dyna? Like, how did you go from, like, 
guy in a garage in the Hollywood Hills to, hey, we should hire this guy. Well, Clyde Beatty and I were in the middle of that. And we met, and he was surfing for Dewey Weber. He was also surfing periodically for Blue Cheer. And we were, he was getting sponsored. And on the side, I'd make some boards for him. We were constantly going to the beach. And we were constantly experimenting with some of these boards that I was working with. And he discovered a niche for himself and the talent that he had out in the water as a really great surfer. And he decided with a, another friend of his that was out at uh, Cal State Northridge that they would get together and utilize some of these new plastics that the other fellow was experimenting with and incorporate that these materials into molded surfboards that um, we produce. Well, the molded surfboard thing was fine for a while until the edges started to blow up around us. And then I had to take over into a shaping room with a, my, my very first Skill 100 planer and start shaping the legitimate, regular what we know today, surfboard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the jump into Dino was at a point where they had the fire at the factory at Dino. And they had a whole bunch of recoverable surfboards that they were looking for anybody in the vicinity to take on some of these burnt surfboards and see if they could restore them to a point where he, Dick Lippincott could make this fire sale out of it. Well, I became acquainted with him at that point in time, and he said, you know, if you don't ever have enough work over here, you can come on down and we'll, uh, we'll figure out something for you to do. So you, you, you cut into some of these burnt surfboards and helped him recover some of his, his assets. And, and then he's like, hey, this guy, Steve Brahms, hardworking guy, and he knows what he's doing. Let's, let me reach out to him and offer him a job if he wants one. That's right. Let's pay him $6.35 per shape and see if you'll see if you'll go <laughs> are you still making 635 no no i'm 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 not i'm, <laughs> I'm spending that on a gallon of gas right yeah um so what's the year when you're working for dino and dino's out of huntington beach where's dino exactly yeah, dino at this point rebuilt the factory off a of dyer road in santa ana okay and they had um david nuevo was still under contract quirky Carroll was just still basically lingering mm-hmm. with a contract and the new factory had um a, probably a much better rent there and where it was and, yeah. and was the david nuevo label um i'm thinking to the world there was 72 world contest and david nuevo wrote a twin fin a fish. Were you making those boards for David Nueva? I was making boards for David Nueva, but that was when Terry Martin was still with Dino Surfboards. Oh, interesting. I didn't know Terry was with Dino. Der- Terry Martin was the head shaper for Dino Surfboards. Oh. And he was making boards for uh, Corky Carroll and David and whoever else was on the roster. But uh, those two are certainly the noticeable names right. in history. And uh, Terry shaped that board for David uh-huh. that he was that got stolen and hung up on yeah. the end of the pier there was yeah. in the contest. So that was a Terry Martin shaped dyno. That, that was a Terry Martin shaped dyno. And he um I Dick Lippincott, who owned the company, was a challenge to work for. And I think that once the fire happened that they all were renegotiating their position with uh, the dyno label. And uh, Terry Martin I think had a prior history with Hobie. And he decided that he went to um, another group before Hobie. I think it was called the Surfers Alliance that was uh, located in the, 
in Malibu Canyon, in Laguna Canyon. Hmm. And the uh, factory was missing now a shaper, but had lots of orders. They were selling, Dino was selling boards, as we know what a famous label it was, boards all over the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is when I got an opportunity, and I just jumped in full, yeah, full blast. And and obviously, at some point, we turned these square tails into a swallowtail, right? Yeah, right. And and of course, what, what kind of affected? Um, how much were you guys noticing what was happening in San Diego, if at all, regarding like the fish design and Steve Liss, or was the was there any competition there? Was there any, like, mine's better than yours? Like, did you sense that there was, like, anything there? Or am, am I just imagining? No, there's no imagination to that at all. That's still going on. There's a territorial uh, uh, association with you grow up in that area and the stories that you hear that go back to a origin of, wherever these people are either coming from or coming to and living that area and the Steve Liss uh, history there as a kneeboarder. And then the, uh, the big change, though, was how to get a, the board to work that had a really wide tail with keel fins all the way back with not much of a thought into the dynamics of the, the bottom of the board with the kneeboarding mentality, the kneeboarding thing was a low center of gravity. And the trick was to get the board to really perform was a stand-up board with a center of gravity three feet off the deck as opposed to maybe one foot off the deck. And a bunch of different things had to change to make the board useful in the conditions of performance surfing. And the reassignment of the location of the fins, the single-foiled fin, the degree of the cant out, the amount of V in the tail. I've now just, since all these 40 years of shaping this particular board that we're pigeonholed in talking about here. (laughs) When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I, I've pl- I've, we can talk single fins if you want. <laughs> you know, I, play, I still shape, pl- shape plenty of those, longboards and whatever else you want. But the, the fish is just inc- incredibly organic to me now. It's gone from one year to the next, and I still wake up in bed. I just this last year woke up thinking, you know what? This asymmetrical thing is interesting with the way people are putting something together and throwing it at the wall. And if it sticks a little bit, fine. But I sat up in bed one morning and I thought, you know, I've been making this half of the board for 40 years and this half of the board for 35 years. So down the center, let's put those two together. I'm guaranteed on your toe, you've got a keel line, and we'll put the classic fish outline on that toe side. On the heel side, we're going to shorten the water line, we're going to add a wing, and we're going to add a set of quads. And in that will be on your heel side. Your rotation and pivot on a circle and an arc will be a lot tighter on your back because the ergonomics of your body don't work backwards the same way they do forwards. You can lean on the front end and really crank your power and speed on that single keel fin. And um, it just struck me as uh, a natural. But try to explain that to somebody where they think after a while that, oh, I don't want a board that just goes on right waves. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want a board that just goes left. Yeah. But uh, even the, the... the members of the dealership force to try and explain that and watch their eyes kind of, kind of glaze over and wrap their head around that future fish board that uh, it's going to be a while before that thing really gets off the, gets off the, the ground. So, to so, so this asymmetrical that you're describing is this, so you're, 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 this is a, something that you've come up with in the last 10 years, or are you talking about back in the dino days you were trying to sell this? No, this is only a year and a half old. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah, you know, there's been a kind of a resurgence in the smallish yes. asymmetrical t- style board, and um, Carl has, uh, Ekstrom has done his work back in the days with the uh, making the asymmetrical board sort of a uh, sit-up and take-notice type of a board. But I'm still uh, at least five boards a week, making the classic fish yeah. based on the old traditional dino. I've still got my old dino template that's splintering and the full force template on those single fins and a board that we made with uh, David that was kind of a, a California round pin and uh-huh. uh, people are ordering that. And I've uh-huh. got an account in Japan, Holy Smoke, that um, uh, orders a lot of those old nostalgic retro boards. With the dino label or the Brom label? With the Brom label, yeah. yeah. I see a lot of your boards on Instagram. I see a lot of the fishes. Yes. And I see that you're in the shaving bay a lot, working hard. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about the, the fins exactly, because I, I know that, you know, you mentioned like the kneeboard boards down in Point Loma area with the double keel, double foil keel fins. Well, what's your thought on fins, the, the proper fin for the fish design? I'm sure that you, you've you been working on it for 50 years or whatever. It's It's been a 
you must have a pretty good take on it. I do. I, I, I do, you know, and coupled with a hang glider and flying in the wind and aerodynamics, there's hydrodynamics, all of these different things that uh, play and interact with a hard molecular surface. And your hard molecular surface is the bottom of your board or the board and those fins. Those fins are hard. Most of them have some flex, some of them don't. But I'm an advocate for a glassed-on fin that has no flex. It gives you what you want right now. And in the shape of the plan shape of the fin, the um, San Diego area, as you pointed out, had uh, a particular affinity for a keel-style fin. And I believe that there was... enough influence from the kneeboard days that kept those keel fins so far back towards the tail tips that not only were you not getting any water flow past the trailing edge of the fin, your fin was so far back on the tail there that the board was having a little bit of potential difficulty in rotation. It was great to go fast straight Things like that were were uh, very, very obvious. But when it came time to turn, we needed to do something about that. And that meant moving the fin forward it, um, near the rear foot. It meant carving out the trailing edge of the fin so that water would flow through the back and the trailing edge of the fin. And now we're also dealing with two fins, not just a D fin like on a single fin. We're talking about two fins that are working together in concert and in rotating a board around a set of fins, those two fins, you needed as much help as you could get getting the board to interact with what your body wanted to do and have water flow around and behind those fins, but still leaving enough base on the fins so that the board would still, with all that planing area and the plan shape of the outline, give you that speed and planing area that all you needed to do is if you had any skateboarding experience, take that skateboarding, pumping the skateboard experience onto the surfboard on this fish and pump it, and you could make something happen where there was nothing in the water to give you any speed forward. The next thing I can think of about those fins, you mentioned whether they were double foiled and keeled, like they they were and still are in some cases, uh, depending upon what you like. And the um, idea of the single foiled fin had such obvious potential from aerodynamics that it only made sense to put a single foiled fin with a flat side on the inside out towards the rail there. And what would happen is you get the board bent over on its rail in the direction you're making the turn, and you're really engaging more than anything the pressure on the, the engaged and buried fin. And that fin is pushing you forward and turning, helping you turn in the direction that you're initiating by having the leading edge of that fin foiled on the outside of the outline, which gives the fin lift. The best example of that is a cross-section of a wing of an airplane. At any point that you get the concept of what gives that wing lift in the direction of up is the same exact thing that's happening with the fin that you're engaging in the water under pressure gives that fin up and lift and in the direction of the turn that you're you're engaging it in. Then why would we even want a double foiled fin? 
Good question. That's a good question, Scott. And you're not, I, you know, you're not I, a believer. I, I know, and I'm not a believer in putting the fins straight parallel with the yeah. the stringer. Head yeah. a, you know, I think yeah. that that's a conflicting thing to the idea of wanting to get out there in the water and turn. Yeah. What about, um, you know, there's been some discussion or I've seen discussion about certain design elements that make a fish a fish. You know, we have twin fins, like say like, Mark Richards twin fins. There's like a like a rocket fish, like a Carl Hayward rocket fish. There's even a Clyde Beatty rocket fish. There's probably a Steve Brom rocket fish, right? <laughs> okay, hold on. Let me get to that. But what makes a fish a fish? I've heard something as simple as it has to be 17 inches from the tip of each swallowtail, from one tip to the other. That that measurement between those two tips has to be 17 inches. Is there some go-to number or or something that you can go, yeah, that's now a fish, and this is, on the other hand over here, is now just a twin fin. The twin fin became a little bit too generic in terms of interacting that equation with a fish. To me, a fish has always had a variance of dynamics to it. You could probably even still get away slightly with calling a fish a fish if it had a wide nose, a wide-ish nose, and a fairly wide tail tips. You're saying 17, in, uh, as just throwing out a number, my tail tips are, uh, are 10 and 3 quarters in a, a board that is ergonomically designed for the general human body. I will adjust the whole equation uh, to a degree, depending upon the customer. If the customer comes to me and is 220, has a size 13 foot, and says that um, this is the kind of board that I'm comfortable with, I may push out the parameters of the width and discuss the length and um, may adjust the tail tip uh, points between 10 and 3 quarters and a little wider, but not a lot. There are that school of thought down in the San Diego area, perhaps, that pushes. I've seen these straight tails pushed out to 17 and a half and some of these bigger numbers. But to me, you can't get the board to rotate or turn. It's ergonomically unpleasant. It goes fast and it goes straight. If you want to go fast and you go straight, maybe that straight tail line with no curve in between the or such, such a thing as hips I put mm-hmm. a slight amount of curve in the outline of the board back there so that the board will break out of being tight up under the lip. If you've got a straight outline tail line along that upper line of the lip and you're going fast as you can and it's closing out in front of you and you need to angle back down to a bottom turn, the only way to get away from there is to have a little fulcrum point in the outline so that you can rotate that, that line of your board back down the wave and recover. Yeah. But... It's ergonomics to me. I surfed this thing at Dino and did all the widths on my own. I've surfed that board for six and a half years and made all the adjustments. David and I would trade boards out, and he'd beg me for my new board out in the water at 56th Street in Newport. And and he'd go, I I, I can't give this back to you. (laughs) Come on, David. Come on, David. I'm not going to say no to David. Yeah, yeah, no, I I appreciate that, David. But... uh, you know, come on, I, I, trade me back, and then you can play with this later. Yeah. But the, like I say, the ergonomics, I mean, the average human, has uh, the men that I, or boys, have like a maybe a, a 10, 11 
uh, size shoe. You get the board that's much wider than 20 and a half, and then you're starting with a rail-to-rail problem. The transition from rail-to-rail in a quick, responsive turn becomes a time frame. You're going from one rail, count the time, to the other rail. The narrower you get from rail to rail, the faster you're going to be able to transition to make a, a turn and a shore break and a bottom turn and a cutback under the lip, back down the face of the wave. If you've got too too wide of a board, you start to have a problem. I try to design these boards to be part of the person. I, I like to look at it as a, a, there's three elements. There's the wave, one. There's the board, two. And then there's the rider, three. If I can eliminate the board from the equation, now we're just working with the rider and the wave. And the rider can see what he wants to do on the wave, but by the time he's had a little bit of learning curve on this third element, that third element goes away and it becomes more of a mental experience where you move your head in the way, you start to move your shoulders, your shoulders transfer to your hips, that transfers to your feet. The next thing you know, if your board has no hang-ups, the board is going where your thought was and where your head was turning all those shoulders. And I've done what I like to think at this point is turn this into a sculpture rather than just something that might be defined as a surfboard with a deck and a bottom, and it's connected by a continuity of, of rail curves. Yeah. And in, in, in saying that, I, I, I could go on a long oratory of, of, of connecting every square inch of the board from tip to tail where the... It's entry exit, leading edge, trailing edge, having soft crown deck so that you get your thickness flow for paddling into the waves, for paddling out. You get your thickness flow of that particular board under the center of your chest at the center of the board so that you can really foil out the rails and think carefully about how the rest of the board from nose to tail foils. Let me ask you this. I've often thought that the thickest point of the board should be where the wide point is. And that from there, the board foils thinner all the way through to the tail. In other words, if the wide points, let's say it's two inches up from center and, and it's whatever, it's 20 inches wide, that should be the thickest point of the board. And then it foils down. Is, is that a correct assumption or am I to 1977? I believe that too, yeah. wholeheartedly. Even I've been shaping these longboard pigs lately and their wide point is two-thirds of the way back from the nose. And that's where the thickest point of this board is. It's mm-hmm. you know, measured th- 23 and three-quarters across the width. That's where the thickest part of the, uh, the, the board is. From there forward, you're dealing with swing weight. But it, it transfers back to the fish and, and putting that fish and the idea I put my wide point of the fish generally in the range of three inches above the center of the measurement of nose to tail. Mm-hmm. And at that point, that's pretty close to where the thickest part of that board is looking at it as a, on a profile. That puts the, um, makes the board balanced. It's incred- incredibly important to have the board balanced. You can have that board really heavy, but if the board's out of balance, then something's going to feel really bad out in the water. You're going to notice it. I've heard people say, oh, uh, for instance, Mike Diffenderfer's foils are incredible. Or you can put a Parrish, a Tom Parrish under your arm, and you can just feel how great the foils are, or the foil is, singular, foil. What do you think they're referring to? 
balance. You can see it. You can feel it pretty much where you pick it up, and it's balancing under your arm how the weight of that board is distributed, nose under your arm to tail. You're going to find that balance point, and then you look down that board and sight it forward. Mostly you're going to see something that is boiled forward towards the nose with an incredible blend of rail curves and contours into the, the deck of the board. You have to look on a separate view to see really what they're doing with the, the bottom of the board, as you do mine for the most part. But you can generally pick one of mine up and you're going to be grabbing it uh, pretty close to the wide point and you're going to be able to sight that under your arm forward in your line of sight and just watch that thickness flow towards the nose and on the rails blend back from a leading edge to a trailing edge. My boards paddle underwater. It's an, a, a funny, fun phenomena to think that you're going to lose the wave, but you're still paddling just with that one last ditch effort to connect with this wave that you want so bad. Next thing you know, the board's nose pops right out through the face of the wave and you go, oh my God, I'm up. There I go. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's great. It's a great, fun feeling. You know you're on the right track when that stuff happens. Right. Quick break in the action to tell you about the RideList app. RideList, download it on your iPhone. It's an app for buying, selling, swapping your gear, mountain bikes, surfboards, snowboards, skis, camera equipment, skateboards. You know the drill. Guys that ride, guys that have gear, this is your app, RideList. I'm just taking a quick peek here, and I'm seeing Channel Islands Fever with Spine Tech. What else do we got here? I'm clicking on another Channel Islands, a team board, Yaden Nichols board. No dings, in great shape in the Santa Barbara area, $275. That looks like a winner right there. What else do we have here? A mini bamboo cruiser skateboard, $20. Speed E for $20. And plenty of other cool things here. I'm going to set the filters for snow for mountain gear. No, how about bikes? Let's see what we get. I click apply, and there's a Fuji Obey 56-centimeter fixed-gear bike. This looks like a legit bike for a legit street rider. I think that's what they're called. I don't know much about it. $800 for this Fuji Obey 56-centimeter 50, fixed-gear bike. So there's all sorts of stuff on the RideList app. Uh, use the app, like-minded gearheads such as myself and like you guys. Gear that we use, this is a rider's marketplace. You put your stuff up here or you see stuff up here and you just deal directly with the person. No BS, no Craigslist, tire kickers. This is for you, RideList. Download it today. Now back to the podcast. Let's... um. Let's shift gears because I, I want to talk about this fun story that you and I spoke about on the phone, which is this. You mentioned you grew up in the Hollywood Hills. Yes. Of course, the Hollywood sign was put up there, I want to say like 1929 or 1923, something like that. And it was put up by a real estate mogul to basically to promote Hollywood as a place to buy land. And... um you have a very interesting history with the Hollywood sign. I so do. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about that. And I may interrupt here or there when I need to uh, clarify or I have something I want to find out about. Yeah, the Hollywood sign, that's for sure, is uh, 
was an icon, uh, a landmark, world known. It's 45 feet tall. 55 feet 55 tall. 55 feet tall. And I wonder how, how wide is the whole sign, do you know? From, from I wrote the, it down here. From the H to the Y? 352 feet well, long. Well, that could be. That, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised there. The, sign, the letters are 55 feet tall, and the width of the letters may be 45 it's feet. It's a world-known sign. I mean, there's, there's probably no other landmark in Los Angeles that's more symbolic of Hollywood and Southern California than the Hollywood sign. Exactly. And you lived real close to there, obviously. Very close to there, and not only did I live very close to it, but played there all the time. We had canyons. The Errol Flynn Estate was down and over from the Hollywood sign. Bronson Park was down from the Hollywood sign. Some of those uh, waterfalls and the canyons, the quarry that the studios, MGM, Paramount, and, and um, Warner Brothers used for some of their science fiction movies was up Bronson Park, and you could just take a fire road to the left. Next thing you know, you're in one of those tunnels that they in the caves that they filmed some of that great science fiction stuff. And um, but up from that, that area there, you could just keep going on up the hill. And I had a shepherd that we, a German shepherd that we would uh, run the the hills, and we would all just put on hiking boots and run downhill as fast as we could. <laughs> it was a, you know Crazy. measured measured slippage in the in the the gravel. Uh-huh. But uh, that's the kind of thing we do with the dogs. And the Hollywood sign was a part of that whole area and that terrain there. We knew all the, the trails up to the ridge line, across the ridge line, down to the sign base. And like a whole lot of other people with, that would uh, show up there with spray cans and spray their name and paint on the bottom of the letters of the sign and all the garbage. So the bottom of the letters of the sign, are they just do they have some sort of concrete footing or something that people would terrorize with? Spray paint? They would. And yeah. in those days, it, it evolved. It never was, uh, uh, they, they might have been sunk in concrete, but in those early days, not that, in my early days of yeah. the association with the sign. Like 68, it, 69, 77. Like yeah, that. It was, they, that, that sign was built with redwood poles, the same poles that they used for uh, telephone poles. Right. And then it was sheet metal that was uh, lashed to the poles and to make the cables. To make the actual letters. To make the yeah, sheet metal. Sheet metal, yeah. Uh, tin, sheet metal, mm-hmm. corrugated. And they punched a bunch of holes in there to keep the wind, wind from ter- tearing it all up anytime soon. Yeah. It happened eventually. But uh, by the time we, we got the big idea to um, change this sign. Who's we? What, what's, who's we? I want to know who we is. The, the, the we is four other artists. Three other artists. artists. A loose term. Yeah, they called us loonies. They called us vandals. They called us all kinds of. So there's things. you and three other guys. Me and three other guys. Yeah, one was ABC cameraman. He was the youngest cameraman for ABC Sports, and and he was his name was Luis Rojas. Luis Rojas. Luis Rojas. Steve Brom. Steve Brom. Danny Finegood. Danny Finegood. And another fella who was a court recorder called Eddie Estrada. Eddie Estrada. So right. you four guys are buddies. You're lurking around this area. You're you're how old are you at this time when you when this when this uh, art so to art we're going to call it art when the art took place. How 20, twenty six. Twenty six. I just backtracked. What what year? That was uh, seventy six. So nineteen seventy six. You it's guys. The first time we changed it. Okay, so you changed the Hollywood sign. So tell me. Go on. Continue. Yeah, yeah. That was that was when we got the big idea to. Uh, associate the 
laws that were changing. It was a difficult time for people that liked to smoke marijuana. And the idea of uh, commemorating the change of the law at that year, 76 to 77, on the January, January 1st of 77, the law changed that uh, changed the marijuana law from a felony to a misdemeanor. Still illegal, right. but it was a big deal. Governor Jerry Brown, a state law? Governor, federal law. Uh, well, state law, I federal. believe, yeah. And we um, hiked up there on New Year's Eve. The New Year's Eve? Were you a little tipsy? No. This- okay. No, and as a matter of fact, we'd already we'd already been up there many, many, many times. But at at this point, right. we were sure of what we were going to do. We you already, mean you had gone prior for due reconnaissance on for this reconnaissance part? for measuring, for measuring, looking specifically at where tie-off points were. The idea was to change the sign visually. How many years or months in the planning before the actual change took place? Like, how many times did you go up there recon it, have meetings? Okay, we're close. Well, this is the type of material we need. All of that stuff. Yeah, probably a month. A month of planning. Yeah, but the thoughts were were. With our annuals for Hollywood High School, if somebody would come along and change the H and write in Hollywood or weed or or cancel out something in one of the photographs that would change the letters to something, and it was an idea that was just Floating begging around. begging to happen. Begging to happen. Yeah. And so the idea is what? You're going to change two letters. Which two letters, and what are you going to change them to, and what are they going to say? The two letters were the O's within the W and the D of the wood of the Hollywood. And that's what the sign read these days. It's just the Hollywood sign. The letters land part of that development project years ago had gotten torn down and it was just the Hollywood sign now. So we got a big idea to change the O's into E's with the use of two white curtains that were measured exactly to be tied off in the center of the O's and two dyed black curtains that were designed to be tied off that would cover the lower right-hand corner of the O's, which essentially altered the O's, making them E's. And that night, we climbed up there and pulled that off in about four hours. It was just the four of us. So New Year's Eve night. New Year's Eve night. cold? It was cold. It was dark, like midnight, one or two. It was, it was, it was definitely. We waited until midnight. Yeah, nineteen seventy-seven, seventy-six, seventy-six, and then you know, we were. We, well, we actually, well, as you're right, seventy-seven. So when we got by a few it, hours, but, by a few hours, right. yeah. But you know, you could, you could. We were, we would hang out behind the letters, and nobody from below could see us. Behind us was just nothing but the rest of the hill to the peak, right. and above that was a radar station that was all fenced off, but nobody attended. It was just probably either automatic or or just a electronic a peak uh, sig- okay. signaling station. Yeah. Nothing behind us, no noise, no nothing. So you climb up there with your with your drapery with this these curtains, the four of you, and and you probably got flashlights. No, it was it was just a m- muscle memory, right. There were enough lights in the in the canyon, and we had to crawl uh, under a fence next to a, somebody's residence and get up past the back of their residence, uh, part of the the uh, the hills that were truly the hills, not part of their property, 
but still there were fences on the street level that would you know, just dogs, kind of discourage. Dogs barking? Or? No, no, no. We okay. never, we never really got identified so it was that smooth way. It was smooth. Walk it was up careful. To the One sun. of us held the the fence back away from where it was uh, uh, stretched across the the ground to allow the other three guys to crawl under there. And then we had these backpacks with the curtains in there, and we'd unfurl the curtains once we got to the base of the the O's. And at each corner of the curtains, we had a, a, a rope that was at least as long as it took to get midway up the the, the letter from the ground. And it was taking that rock that was duct taped to this rope to duct, that was taped to the corner, to having the guy on the bottom, two of us, Louie and I were on the... Uh, um, on the sign, behind the sign, waiting to catch the rocks from the ground level. And we tied them off in the center of the O's and hauled them up and, like a sail, mm-hmm. tied them off, and then we climbed down a little ways and got the bottom tethers and tied them off taut to the other portion of the sign. You couldn't see the ropes, but uh, the um, once the sheets got strung taut in between the spaces of the O on the first O, we went down and we did that black one below that and getting it aligned to the corner of the O. And then once that was in, in line, all of us shifted over to the other O's, the other O, and did the exact same thing. And um, you say the whole thing took you about an hour and a half or two hours or four, the whole, no, four hours? The, the whole thing was about four hours from the ground when we parked the car and climbed up through there. And on the sign, it was probably about an hour. That's quite a lot of work. It was a lot of work, and we had to do it between laughing at each other. We were laughing. Everybody was, like, laughing, and, and you get to start laughing a little bit too loud, and somebody's going, shut up, <laughs> shut up. Shh. You know, it was really, really hilarious. But we knew we had it right, and then we uh, started to decide, okay, we're all, we're gonna, we better get the hell out of here now that we got this. And we could run down the front of the ridge line and stop halfway, look back at it, and it was spectacular how great it was and how perfect it was. And now the Hollywood sign reads Hollyweed. And and did you sleep the rest of the night or did you wait for the sun to come? No out? sleep. No, no, no. We we were we were on the phone to the LA Times. We were on the phone to KRLA. Oh, you were doing your own PR. Oh, we did our own PR, absolutely. Oh, we got a hold of the Citizen News, the Herald Examiner, LA Times, KRLA, KFWB. These are all media networks that were very at the peak of popularity. And were you proclaiming that you were the artist or were you saying, hey, you won't believe what happened? Hey, you won't believe what happened. Go look at the signs. Somebody changed the sign to Hollyweed. And um, um, we made the uh, photograph. Some some staff photographer for Associated Press got out there on the uh, street at Beechwood. It was a street that had the best visibility of the face of the sign front on. And it was a beautiful morning. Couldn't have after much better weather. And this staff photographer took a, a photograph that made the front page of the L.A. Times. I brought it with me to show you. Oh, cool. Anyway, I'll take a picture cool, of it with cool. you later. But, Good. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So this was a this was a big success for you four artists and and what happened that day? What was it like with for you guys that day as far as news or like was there any sort of oh no we might get in trouble? Yeah, there was all of that, but you know we were just so excited to have pulled this off and to do it without defacing the sign, which was important. 
the the most important. I mean, exactly. we all love the sign. We all grew up around the sign. We would never be able to face anybody right. if we had done anything to damage that sign. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was just yeah. simply tied up. If they were going to uh, get us on anything, it it probably wouldn't have even been trespassing. It might have been littering. And in which case, we actually did litter a packet of information that declared that um, this was an environmental art. Oh, so you you spread this this these leaflets around. You spread these things around. No, we or... left we left one Manila envelope oh. that, that was a declaration of the uh, <laughs> in, in, intention. Did you have a name for you guys? Was, was there a name? Like did like did you have some sort of nom de plume of your four artists? Well. Danny was probably more instrumental than any one of the other three of us and lived the closest to the sign. And some, somebody coined the idea that this, these guys are like this band of vandals. But the term that Marijuana Monthly, it was a magazine that was published those days about people growing and paraphernalia, they did an article on us. And the title page of the article was Danny and the Vandells. Ah, a, a play on a, a famous band. Exactly. Now, the L.A. Times front page of the L.A. Times, was there a story that was associated with the image or was it just the picture? Just the picture and that some rascals climbed up there in the middle of the night and altered the sign. And the Chamber of Commerce was not happy. I mean, there was, we made the Chamber of Commerce unhappy three more times. Okay, so let me, let's start with the first time, though. How did it come down? Like, did you, they, did you get caught? Did you announce that you had done it and we're going to go up there and take it down? Like, how did the Hollywood weed sign turn back into the Hollywood sign? Park Rangers. Oh, they, they took care of it. Park Rangers, yeah, at the uh, instruction of the uh, Chamber of Commerce. And how many days after? Like later, later that day. Oh. Later that day, it okay. stayed up for hours. It was, yeah. I think, everybody was so hungover right. from partying for New Year's Eve, and we just got away with it without uh, a hitch. Uh, the people even that lived near the sign probably didn't had no idea until they woke up later, or somebody gave them a phone call that lived in the vicinity and say, "Hey, have you looked out your back window?" And and did did you what was the feeling amongst the local neighborhood? Was they were they did they get a chuckle out of it, or were they disgusted that there's these hippies that are just terrorizing the neighborhood? Like what was the general consensus? Maybe a little bit of both. Maybe a little bit of both, Scott. I I really I really don't know what yeah. what that was like. I I do know that since the Hollywood sign has become such a and Hollywood has become such a a tourist venue and location that they've got scenic tours that you can buy a pass on a bus to get on up into their neighborhood and the neighbors hate it. I bet. Oh, it's, it's ugly. There's ordinances that they're working on and yeah. laws that they're working on. Yeah. Most of the sign, most of the pictures you see of anybody doing a selfie that has the sign in the background, they're doing it from uh, an adjacent ridge line that has a, maybe a, a, a levelized view. Right. So you mentioned there's three other times that, that Danny and the Vandells uh, broke out their artistic license on the Hollywood sign. That's right. How many more years after the initial one did we, did, like, to explain these three other times? These three other times were done in the same construction for the most part. With the curtains? With the curtains or plastic. Mm -hmm. And the first ones were, were black dyed curtains, but 
the next one, we grew, we graduated from Hollywood High School at the Hollywood Bowl. They had all of us uh, Your ceremonies. getting our ceremonies at the Hollywood Bowl. And all those years prior to that, anybody that was interested in Easter and the sunrise service that was given at the Hollywood Bowl, you could see on a beautiful day the Hollywood sign clearly above the top of the crest of the bowl. And we got the big idea to go up there and camouflage out the first L entirely. Oh, so now it says Hollywood. Now we've got Hollywood for Easter sunrise service at, uh, and for Easter for everybody in Hollywood. Was there discussion about which L should be taken out? Because if it was the second L, it would have said whole. So, I mean, obviously- yeah, yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. I mean, it, it didn't last too long. It lasted about as long a, a discussion as you just worked out in your right. mind, too. It was the balance as artists. We wanted the balance there. And it actually worked out a little bit better visually with the target group being the group that was assembling at the Easter Sunrise. They must service. have loved it. Right? I mean, I was there. To love. I was there. I never participated in Easter sunrise service at the Holy Bowl before that, though I knew that they were going on. But you went to this but one. I went to this one. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, and it was it was another perfect uh I don't think the Chamber of Commerce was ready for figuring out how many more things could be done with those letters and things could we've said that might uh, associate with another event. Now did the did they know that it was another, that it was the same four guys? Like have, are you guys sort of underground famous for this at this point or we're under I mean people know like your your friends know and yeah, yeah our friends know and our parents have gotten wind of it whether they liked it or not especially the Hollyweed one it came in days where you know the parents were of another generation and yeah. you know I think maybe reluctantly my my mom clipped out the front page when I, I, I admitted where I was last night, and she clipped that out, and I said, I've, I've still got it. And, and my dad just kind of like shook his head. They were pretty cool parents, though. But yeah. um, we uh, did Holy, Hollywood for Easter Sunrise and did that with black plastic and completely covered it up. And it wasn't the same four of us. Three of us were the same, Luis, Danny, myself, and then another friend of ours that was a little bit more aggressive with um, uh, the, the 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 fourth guy in the first one. His, his he was a court reporter, yeah. and he was he was scared to death that something was going to come out with his name associated with it, and he would lose his entire career potentially. Yeah, but if um, making this brief, or what about the third time? The third time was when Oliver North. Uh, the Colonel Oliver North. Now, uh, I guess so. Nineteen eighty-five ish. That was nineteen eighty-eight-five or six or seven. Yeah, towards the end of Reagan's second term. Yes, exactly. Right. The, uh, the Contra hearings were going okay. on, and Oliver North was kind of a cult hero for what his uh, participation in the Contra, um, uh, especially Iraq. in that sort of you know upper middle class sort of for lack of a better phrase, you know, Reagan area, right? Like Hollywood was kind of an upper middle class Reagan area. You're right. Yeah. As as an actor and that whole thing. Yeah. So you named, so you took out the H. Camouflaged out the H. All that big old H with this time we, we did it with the same four guys because it was one letter. But the next time we did it after then that, that made it in the LA times. That was the second section. I've I've got a picture of that with me too, that I'll, I'll share with you. And the fourth time that we did it, we did not get any photographs. Nobody got a photograph. And what did it say? It said, oil war. 
Really? That we, took a lot of work. Took 10 of us. And we climbed up there, and these are the days of cell phones, with miniature TVs, the battery operated. We were up behind the letters watching The Simpsons, climbing so around. 90, during the 90, first 91. Gulf War. Yeah, right. it was the Gulf War, exactly. And we went to war with Kuwait. Yeah. Or, uh, well, they invaded, we, invaded yeah, Kuwait. Iraq invaded Kuwait. Invaded Kuwait, exactly. Oil war. And we camouflaged out the H. We left the uh, O alone. We camouflaged out the base of the first L. That changed that to an I. Left the next L alone, camouflaged out the Y completely. That left a space between now we have the word oil and we left the W alone. Changed the O to an A in the same manner that we changed the E's to uh, the O's to E's in Hollywood with strategic placement of black plastic and white plastic. And then we camouflaged out the next, uh, we, we camouflaged out the portions of the next O to turn it into an R and then camouflaged out with black plastic, the entire D. So that's, that's amazing. That really was quite an, an ordeal. That was, there were 10 of us and the ones that were, were able to climb and weren't afraid of the night and the, and the dark. Then we hung up on the tops of the sign and the ones on the bottom took care of their job on the bottom. We just went from one letter to another until it was completely done. And we got close to getting caught on that one because I, I perhaps uh, that that uh, that occurred not so much on a day where people may have been inebriated like they might have been right. on New Year's Eve, but we were all stealth as much as we could. Five of us went up the front of the mountain. The other five of us went across the top on the ridge line. We got there at slightly different times. We all just kind of got, uh, and, and in the meantime, between the 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 Hollywood sign and what we were doing here, the sign had come down. And they tore it down and they rebuilt it with galvanized poles, like we have our light poles on the streets, and yeah. and yeah. Re- rebuilt the sign. Beautiful. But they also put up razor wire and made it really difficult to to do that. Oh. I went up and reconnaissed the uh, day beforehand with my dog. Looking like, oh, you're like, oh, you're just walking the dog. You're really not, uh, you know, yeah. kind of looking suspicious here. Okay. Thanks, Steve Brom. Appreciate you being here. Scott Bass, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
wants a girl like you Can't afford no diamond rings For all those other fancy things It's only one thing I can give A song down where you live This is Down the Line, Surf Talk Radio for San Diego. Brought to you by Coors Banquet. Call now from anywhere, 570-1360. Now, Scott Bass and Jeff Baldy Baldwin. Yeah, guy. Good morning, Bassy. Good morning, Jeff Baldwin. You're listening to Down the Line Surf Talk Radio in San Diego on Extra Sports 1360. I'm Scott Bass. To my right, Jeff Baldwin wearing a uh, black shirt with handprints on it, I think probably from his daughter. Yes. And um, it's September 5th. It's a Sunday, another Sunday in San Diego, September 5th. And the- Extra Sports 1360. Hey, I'm Steve Sherman, photographer, and you're listening to Down the Line Sunday on Extra Sports 1360 AM Radio with Baldy and Bassey, Delmar guys. Did you go to this concert last night, Scott? No, I wish I would have, but, uh, you know, I go to bed at 8 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Grandpa. ZZ Top. That's the best song ever right there. <laughs> right up there with the Jimmy Bounds song, Mike. Jimmy Bounds. <laughs> <laughs> Every song is the best song for Bassie. <laughs> this show brought to you by Selena Cruz Surf Tours oh. in southern Oaxaca. For more than a decade, Selena Cruz Surf Tours hosted the best surfers in the world. Selena Cruz Surf Tours will put you on a series of right sand bottom points in tropical bliss. And I'll be there next week and I'll tell you all about it. Book now for the spring <laughs> 2011 season. You only live once. Do it right. Book now. Do it right is sort of a double entendre. Yeah. It's all only rights down there. <laughs> you're goofy foot. You're bombed. Do it right. Book now. Email Cesar Ramirez. SurfingMexico at Yahoo.com. SurfingMexico at Yahoo.com. SurfingMojaca.com. All right. Um, in studio now, Sunday, September 5th, Australian shaper JS, Jason Stevenson. And um, I've got a question, an opening question, Jason, that I'm sure you get asked a lot. I'm sure that a lot of people already know the answer to this. But the tractor label, tell me a little bit about the tractor design. What is the tractor label sort of all about? Um, Well, first of all, the tractor came from 
my father owns machinery. So I didn't set out to, at the start of the shaping career, didn't set out thinking, you know, logos and brands and stuff like that. Um, it just was, uh, I was actually walking through a toy store and, and spotted this interesting piece of machinery and and it just happened to 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 stick and I liked it and and it's obviously morphed throughout the throughout the years but that was uh how the logo kind of came about everyone at that time was kind of using names and and um you know putting their names on boards and I'm kind of not that kind of person didn't want my name up in lights I'm a bit more behind the scenes and uh and I thought Morris Cole at the time had a pretty interesting thing going on with his, uh, I think it was this teddy bear at the yeah. time. And I'm like, you know what, I can probably do something a little bit more tougher than that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is funny because he's know, so you, tough. You've got to be pretty uh, tough to put a teddy bear on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I kind of liked it. I, I liked what he did yeah. you know, and liked where he headed with it. So that was, you know, that's where the, the tractors evolved from. But um, personally, I've, you know, I've surfed. Five-year-old started surfing. Live, grew up on an island off uh, the Queensland coast, and that's been my life. Um, and is that a secret island? Or are we allowed to mention the name of that? <laughs> well, island? we have lots of secret <laughs> spots on the show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's okay if you don't. Me- we're we're okay with not mentioning I, the name. I surf. You know, one night I surf in probably the biggest secret spot known to man, and that's, <laughs> that's Snapper Rocks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Um, you know, one. You know, there's already a world tour surfer uh, who's made it probably a little bit more famous now. Bead Derby. Bead, yeah. So if any, if anyone knows where Bead's from, that's where I'm from. All yeah. Right. You know, it's the tractor logo too. Like, it seems like from that spun off a lot of other brands really gravitated to that sort of look. Yes. You definitely. know, there's the chainsaw, and I've seen other sort of icons that logo icons similar mm. and placed similar and. It's it's probably spawned a new generation of thinking, maybe. Um, yeah. You know, I don't. Yeah, I suppose I wouldn't look to say that I've led it. I no. obviously I saw that. You know, like from Morris. You know, and uh, and then I started, and then I did that, and then I've seen. Yeah, a lot of icons now. I think maybe just people think it always always seem to be shapers putting their name on the boards, and and it's just evolved like anything. Yeah. Oh, it comes out good. Mm. Well, you, you sort of touched on your background a little bit. Um, if I may ask, how old are you? I'm 38. 38 years old yep. and a shaper from the Gold Coast. And um, um, what was your childhood like? Um, parents together? Did they divorce? Um, was there anything <laughs> overly, overly traumatic that we need to know about? Um, was it a normal sporting <laughs> Australian childhood? No, I wouldn't say it was. It's There's nothing too normal about it. Um, parents actually did split early, um, which is probably to my benefit. Um, mother worked really hard, had no parental control, and uh, I just <laughs> got to surf um, my brains out on an island that there was a population of a few thousand and and about four of us surfed um so i got a younger brother two years two years younger than i so it was pretty much uh, myself and him who who surfed this island and ratted around on this place um you know for some 23 years born and bred there so i had full control of it who made your boards then um i remember there was guys back then um, Russell Speck, some people may have heard of, who was uh, a bit of a uh, surfed a few contests and stuff like that. But and his his offsider Wayne Kissick actually was a shaper back then, 
And um, I remember just grabbing boards that was under houses, um, under under house under one of the old guys' houses, and that's how I started. What about yeah. sponging? Did you ride a coolie lid, or did you just go right to the stand-up boards? Um, yeah, I wouldn't even go there with that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it's been stand-up, stand-up my whole life. Yeah. 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 Well, what brings you to the USA? I mean, you're here. Everyone knows your label, but um, in many regards, and you sort of touched on it earlier, um, you're sort of um, you're not a, your brand is well known, but you as a person, as a shaper, isn't well known. And and I think in some cases, in some ways, that's kind of a good thing. Mm. You know, that yeah. there's a little bit of mystery. Yeah, I think that's sure. kind of good. What brings you to the United States? Well, I, I I've always kept. I always think that uh, you know, it, I've kept myself out of that. I'm pretty private, live a private life. Um, I love shaping, love surfing, and it's it has become now something that's probably recognised globally. Um, but I still really do try and keep myself out of, you know, I don't want to be the brand's face or, or something like that. I, I, I'm just a shaper. I make surfboards. I surf, and I don't try and put myself... Uh, I'm, I'm not a big self-promoter, that's for sure. So even having me in here today is a, is a massive thing for me, you know. <laughs> 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 Let me get my camera. Yeah, Bald, Baldy's dragged me into this thing. And, I'm uh, sorry. Here I am. It's, so, it's and, only going to get worse. And like, yeah. and, 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 and like we were talking about, too, that the brand, you have these athletes that happen to just be all your closest friends mm. that also happen to be the premier echelon of the surfing world and luke egan and aki and parko mm. and bruce and andy's to some extent yeah um and more well, but through dean morrison and it's just yeah. like yeah, why? that's who you gotta that's who you start with what a great <laughs> face for your brand you know yeah. Like both yeah. guys, so. well i've always let the sur- i think the surfers um sh- you know the surfers showcase your brand and it's uh you know it's a privilege and and it's been great working surfing um and just growing up with all of them um they just happen to be the 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 top of the sport um at each individual's time you know from luke and and Ock and 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 now it's parko and andy and bruce you know so all of those guys and 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 geordie yeah um so how did i forget it, yeah <laughs> number one, number one <laughs> yeah number one slot at the moment but um yeah it, it's been a it's been great you know i just happened to I think that at the start I was a little, um, you know, I, I remember when Luke first walked in and wanted me to make him boards and I was like, wow, this is the, my childhood, you know, goofy footer. Um, so That's I, right, you're a goofy footer. Yeah, I, 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 I surf the right way. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Yeah. We can fix you. So. Yeah. So I um, remember him walking in and just like, well, you know, I kind of felt a little overwhelmed at it all. Um, and you but, were young, I mean, quite young because yeah. that was, what, 10 yeah, f- twelve years ago. I I've been 10? shaping now for fifteen years. Um, I was about twenty three when I first started getting my hands on it, and uh, I think it probably was about three or four years later um, that Luke walked in. So I was pretty green, I reckon. Yeah. And um, but Luke, in in his knowledge and um, you know, I suppose his his maturity and whatever towards surfing and surfboards, and he he pretty much taught me a hell of a lot um, as a surfer. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose I've been lucky too, being a surfer um, and, and starting out early and, and surfing competition and just knowing, as a surfer, knowing the feeling and um, getting so many crappy boards throughout my life that I thought that I might be able to do this all right. <laughs> and did you, when you were, those three years when you started or four, were you working 
under another Shapers brand yeah. label? Or I mean, I, I think a lot of people may have heard of Darren Hanley. Yeah. Um, Mick Fenning's Shaper and Bobby Shaper, I think now. So and Joel's old Shaper and. Joel's old shaper, and yeah, so um, uh, no, yeah, you know, there's the always story a, under the story. There's we always getting... a story, and, and you know, there's always someone coming up behind. Yeah, uh, well, you know, there was back then. So, um, worked for Darren Hanley for for a few years um, until you know got to that point where you know, obviously, I was shaping a lot of boards for a lot of the young guys that were around my age, and and not a lot of the younger guys. And um, you know, I just, I suppose, I got the balls to just walk out. And uh, yeah. um, especially after I was told that I probably wouldn't fit into the, where are you going? How are you going to sell boards? And what do you think? Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the story under the story. The story under the story. I want to know, no, because yeah. I know that Luke Egan also at the time mm. was on Daryl Hanley's boards. Yeah, came to you to shape boards. Yeah, well, and that was like the beginning of a great. Mm. Well, Luke and I, I never actually made. Um, boards for Luke at that time. Luke and I were actually really good friends. We just always hung out and surfed and stuff like that. So a lot of the the talking and information, you know, a lot of stuff going on was just surf and mates and stuff like that. And um, he'd talk to me. He knew that I worked, obviously, with shaping and the stuff in there. And, and I kind of didn't didn't a, a touch on that. I just did my own thing and, and did what I did and, and left that side of it alone. Um, Luke and Darren had a great relationship too. So I think Luke that year got, was number two, and we just talked a bunch about boards and the what was going on with his boards and stuff like that. And I would give him a lot of things that I thought because we surfed together a hell of a lot. So, and it, if his board was doing this or wasn't doing that, and I'd be going, well, I suppose as a young, fresh mind, I'd be going, oh, why don't you try that or stuff like that. But when it all, you know, Luke ended up second in the world, and and after that, I think it just sort of their relationship stalled maybe yeah um and maybe you know for whatever reason it, it it just separated and um luke just luke needed someone to make him boards and and he was talking with i believe wade decoro at the time about boards and and i just happened to be in the right spot at the right time and local young guy and and lived just down the road from him and away we go rest is history and it's amazing too because through that then all of a sudden he has guys like Bruce and Andy just looking up to him as this veteran on the tour and what are these boards and then all of a sudden plugged right in yeah well in it you know because the proof is in how he's riding the boards and yeah, well, all of a sudden you're just holding on to the reins going oh my gosh yeah you get someone like Luke and he commands the respect because yeah. you know he doesn't he's he's a very uh he's a man of few words and his actions speak louder so he he starts riding him and next minute i'm in walks i remember sunny walking in yeah that's and, right and um you know big hawaiian guy walking in going make me some boards and i'm like yeah okay and uh were you like write me a check <laughs> and i was like yeah sweet here you go and um you know, and Sonny and then Andy and Bruce, and, and that's pretty much how a lot of the relationships evolved with those guys um, through Luke. So, yeah, thanks, Luke. Yeah, wow. Well, let's say you've got um, Parco and Bruce Irons and Andy Irons and Mark Ocalupo. Jordy. Four guys. you got those four guys. Aki, Bruce, Andy, and Parco. Jordy. No, no, you're not hearing me out here. Me out. <laughs> We're not to, he's not there yet. Yeah, okay. <laughs> four okay. guys. Okay. <laughs> Jason, only four. Yeah. You can you can take only three of these guys on a surf trip. Which surfer of those four do you, doesn't get invited and why? Parko, <laughs> oh, wow. Bruce, Andy, and Aki. Who do you leave off the island? 
It's like a reality show. No this, surf this, trip for you, pal. This is pretty hard. <laughs> I, I'd probably leave myself off and send all them. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, no, I... Jeez, that's on the spot. I, they're, they're all so... Uh, you, Scott on the spot. That's pretty heavy, Scott. You've got to take them all. I, yeah. No matter what, I'd take them all. What? That, that is weak, Jason. So, I, need, <laughs> I need a name, dude. So, well, so I had handed uh, Jason this new Transworld video, right? High five, and there's an, a great part at the end with Andy surfing these crazy long, perfect barreling lefts of which you were on that trip. Yes. Also probably getting barreled longer than him since you're goofy foot. Yes, yes, yes. Nah, <laughs> Where I, at? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another secret spot somewhere in the, you know, somewhere around Indo. That's um, code for Kandui. Yeah, no, nah, it, it was actually deserts. Uh, um, so, yeah, it was uh, amazing. That place is, it's probably one of the best uh, left-handers in the world. So, yeah, yeah. It's, that's pretty cool, though. Your R&D trips consist of said team and you. Yes. Bring in a ton of boards, and you're like, all right, let's figure out what's going on for next year. Yeah. That's, Here we go, boys. And it's these top-class surfers, and you're just out there moshing. That, that is cool. For yeah, sure. it's pretty – it's a hard it's a hard geek, you know. So um, <laughs> I travel a fair bit, go to all the – you know, Hawaii and, and you know, and, and get to – you know, these are the – I suppose these – after all the hard work, this is the benefits. So, yeah, right. You know, um, it's it's paying off, and I love surfing, so well, it's good. We, I'm sorry to interrupt, Jason. We've yep. got uh, Jason Stevenson in studio, JS, the famous tractor label, Australian shaper. If you want to call in and talk with Jason, 570-1360, anywhere in San Diego. And jsindustries.com, jsindustries.com is his website. Go on there and browse the boards. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and chat with Jason a lot more. So, um, again, 570-1360. You're listening to Downline Surf Talk Radio in San Diego. Baldy and Bassy with you. Stay with us. When you need some surf talk, listen to Down the Line Surf Talk Radio with Baldy and Bassy. You'll get everything you need to know on the weekend. said it that's right you did say it that guy this show is brought to you by the selena cruz surf tours in southern oaxaca for more than a decade selena cruz surf tours has hosted the best surfers in the world and they will they will host you as well selena cruz surf tours 
It's going to put you on a right sand point. Why wouldn't you? Book now for the spring 2011 season. You only live once. Do it right. Book now. Email Cesar Ramirez, surfingmexico at yahoo.com, or visit their website, Google Surfing Oaxaca, and it'll pop right up, surfing-oaxaca.com. And we're back September 5th. And um, Jason Stevenson, legendary Australian shaper, the JS label, the famous tractor label, in studio with us. We learned at break that... Jason would have thrown Bruce Irons off of that. <laughs> so, we appreciate, we appreciate you coming through with that, even if it was off the air. He probably wouldn't have even turned up, so it was probably an easy decision. Wow. And I know that he won't be listening to this. That's why I threw him under the bus. <laughs> oh, he will after I send it to uh, everyone. No, <laughs> he was actually just got back from Pasquale's, and I saw some shots of him. It's like 15 to 18 foot, and he's riding a 4'8" tow board and a six five i think and i saw so, some video of that yeah man. so that's crazy. he wouldn't be on that trip anyway because he would have been somewhere else yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. fair, fair yeah nope. um well uh what brings you to the usa i'd asked you that question i'm not sure we got to it um, effectively i i've we're, we've set up over here we've got uh we've, we've gone in with some uh great manufacturers glass houses and and we've got a couple of machines here and and yeah just pretty much set up what we have back in australia here and here in san diego and here in san diego uh-huh. yeah cool. got, got a got the factory set up in uh miramar just down the road yep and, and if uh, somebody wanted to order a board that's listening now or for, for perhaps myself mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> how would how would we go about doing that just go to your website um go to a store where you know the brands you know where we're here in uh, a lot of the main stores uh, you can order stores. a custom board there if yeah we go to the store, just for order. sure right. um i'm i've been here probably i've been here more than i've been home so um i'm actually out here with my wife's out here and we're uh, looking at houses and and stuff like that so okay a move could be on the cards um i like it love it here Cool. Apart from the, there are waves eventually. I, I promise. Gonna, yeah, that's <laughs> the, that's kind of bit down you know, oh. the downside. But I think my uh, I got a young son who's about nine and he's a frothing grommet and uh, this is right up his alley. Two, yeah, two to one to two foot every day. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, what about the states, Jason? Sort of rubs you the wrong way. You know, I've lived in Australia for a bit and. And I know that there's certain things about certain cultures that sort of, um, you know, that maybe you just don't see eye to eye with. Is there something in the States that you just go, yeah, I could do without that? The traffic. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, getting on that getting on that freeway and, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, I don't know how you deal with it, really. <laughs> <laughs> Which football we text, is better, American? We text while we drive the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> American football or Aussie football? Which football is better? Uh, Aussie football. Oh, come, on. come on. Come on. There's, you know, a <laughs> lot, lot less padding. And, you know, I'm probably going the wrong. This no. is not a path I want to take, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> we hit so hard you need padding. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. The, the converse would be they're so soft they need the padding. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. And here we are on like extra sports chargers <laughs> channel. <laughs> well, um, I've got some Australian names that I thought I would throw at Jason and see if we can't get one word from you that pops into your brain when I throw these Australian names at, at Jason. So let's start with this one. Dick Von Strahlen. Eccentric. Mitchell Ray. Another eccentric. That's two words. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I, I, one word. That's tough. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, a lot of people don't even know who Mitchell Ray is. Yeah. I, I knew he was. Yeah. Uh, Westerly Windina. <laughs> oh. oh, my freak. 
<laughs> How about Morris Cole? Uh, legend. Shane Haran. Runner up. Parco. All time. Captain Good Vibes. Is that like a cartoon character? <laughs> that was five words. <laughs> what about Mark Kelly? Who? Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, will Parco ever be world champion? Yes. Is this still one word? No, no. no this is- we could have <laughs> and Bassie and, and I debate about this. And, uh, you know, in this last event, there was all the video clips of the athletes, and they had Taj, who will never be world champion. And I can say that because he says it. It's not me saying he's not going to. He says all I ever wanted to do was get barreled and do airs. So that is his encoded goal. Joel and Mick, different beasts. So that's the I thing. I think Mick, Mick and Parko are different beasts, I would suggest to you. But I would let the expert Jason discuss this. Oh, they, they, they let do. me give you my take, and then, then you can comment and criticize my take. But I, <laughs> first of all, we all know that Parko is perhaps the greatest surfer right up there you know style wise power i mean he is flawless everyone loves his style it's unbelievable he's almost uh, makes it look too easy now um i have been arguing that it doesn't seem to it seems to me that joel maybe got too much too soon and it's kind of like it's it's kind of like a little bit he's a little soft mentally not in his surfing what is your take on parko being um, world champion explain too much too soon like I've got a killer job. I'm getting paid tons. I've got a house. I've got a beautiful wife. I live at Snapper Rocks. The waves are good. I can go anywhere I want. <laughs> it's a pretty good When I want the boards just show up. It's yeah, like yeah. all provided. So bored. I need to ride a little red fish. You know, it's yeah. like too much too soon. Um, you know, to know Joel personally, he he's – I think he's been under – like if you want to talk competitively, he's, he's under scored or he's underestimated. Um, his, his style is what – you know we all love him for and i think he does he has made it look easy um but you know if you if you looked at instead of a, a flapping arm or a you know your hands in the air after a turn or, or something like that and actually looked at what that board was doing and stuff like that he should have won world titles already um not for the biasness of it um even before he he was riding boards for me but um he he is a very powerful critical has all you know has the full bag of tricks and um i just think that it just hasn't gone his way um i think that probably pre the last few years his you know unique his talent has taken him to the top of the sport um and he's really comfortable in his in his own skin and he and he's don't get me wrong. He's he's wanted every event, and they all say every event he's there to win, and and every every year he's there to to stand up and put his hand up for a world title. Um, it hasn't came his way. There's been unique freaks in the sport, Kelly, Andy, um, and those guys all around. He's been doing it for a long time, you know, and, and his desire to win um, probably has been a, a growing thing as he's grown um, yeah. and as he's matured. Um, he's probably really starting to grow into that, you know, what I really want. I mean, when you're young, you kind of, you know, you're just going with it. And as you grow up, you, you kind of start focusing more and more. And he's got a lot of focus. And I think, I think the commitment he's put in, other than these injury times where he's had to mm. just be stagnant, but in hiring Luke to sort of be there as his mental coach, board facilitator at points, like do this and 
just don't think. And, and, and he I'm got serious su- with his training. I'm not suggesting he hasn't done all the right things, but when you look, for instance, let's say Mick Fanning, and he had a tragedy in his life mm. with his brother. And you look at some of the others, like um, even Aki, who went through a lot of stuff, um, you know, where he kind of had to like reestablish himself and reevaluate where he's coming from. It just seems like Parko hasn't had that, um, and maybe but he had. Maybe, it. Maybe, maybe he had it last year, and now again maybe he had it last year. Yeah, I, but it certainly doesn't look as that's the case this year. But but like, we'll see how it comes out with the triple crown because now he's had two injury years back to back. So that's been a really tough thing, and he's alluding to it in his tweets and his emails and his interviews. Like this is getting hard. Well, I, th- I think you're, finally he's something. You know, that's what I'm saying is that he hasn't had those adversity. Yeah, it's yeah. just been like here you go. Yeah. He's just been like killer. Who needs a world title? Look at me, I'm killing it. <laughs> well, I think more so that he's just he, he. Like you said, there's been those guys have had some adversity. They've had the roller coaster rides. Of, you know, something's happened or something's just ignited this flame and and joel has has just been really really fortunate and lucky and 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 had really good luck in the sense that you know nothing really and he's probably more grateful for that than having something you know yeah like mick looking at losing his brother and stuff like that no one ever wants to have that no i'll see that and and um you know and awkward you know awkward is you know everything that goes on in someone's life and most people would wish although they returned it and has, it has spurred on but you know i think joel's probably very grateful as i would be that nothing has you know and if, if that means all my friends you know it all all plays out really nicely for me i'd probably rather it that way yeah um but at the same time joel's now you know back-to-back injuries um probably looking the form surfer year in year out in the last few years he's he's ticking all the boxes he's uh you know he he's um train boards training and and just everything he's got luke around him he's got myself and he's you know he's got everything going right and and then he just happens to just have really bad luck wow big feet and bad luck (laughs) you know so and uh and you know, see, let's see. It's, you know, let's see what, it's going to be. It's, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. And I'd love to see him come out and feel comfortable with his boards under his feet going into Hawaii, and maybe come out with a triple crown to just really give himself that confidence. It's going to be a tough ask, but it takes a lot of the like all the new maneuver surfing out of the equation. It's just bigger waves, barrel riding skill. It'll be interesting going into next year how he prepares. You know, because it's a whole new portfolio of above the lip stuff happening that he's just been. Well, I know, you know, I know Joel really well, and and behind the scenes, although he can't, he's dragging this boot around again <laughs> for the last however long it's been, and you know, he's still in the gym, and he's still mentally. You know, most people, would, this is a big setback, yeah. And, and Joel, in. In I suppose his maturity and that of what I'm seeing, he's mentally so much stronger and he's dealing with it. You yeah. Know? So he's still, you know, life rolls on and he's still doing all the right things. So I have a feeling this. too. Sorry that mind surfing visualization is a great thing for people at certain points of their careers, and he might not have lost a step. He might just within three or four a week have the sense under his feet again. But where he's going on the waves is maybe even going to get heightened and better. Well, I think for my, you know guys like that, it's like riding a bike. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. But maybe he's 
taking his surfing to new places, visualizing it because he can't access it. Well, he's certainly sitting back, and I think he's got a new perspective because now he has to sit back, and, and it's like anything. When you step outside of the square, all of a sudden he's looking at it from a different perspective. He, you know, he's, he's couch surfing, <laughs> um, unfortunately, but he, you know, he, he's couch surfing and he's watching it all, and he's seeing what's, what's winning heats and what's doing it all instead of probably before he'd be having Luke in his ear yeah. telling him blah, 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 but he's seeing it for himself, and he's probably, I think, he every event that i've sat there and watched he's he's sitting on the couch coaching you know the, everyone in their heat going he shouldn't have done that and he should have done this and and it's like wow well you know his mentality now is a different perspective right let me throw this at you guys if uh kelly wins 10 and retires as many are speculating um and then joel wins a world title whenever um, will he be less of a champion in that he didn't win a title during Kelly's era like Andy, like Mick? Guys that are in his same contemporary class, all of a sudden his world title wasn't won with Kelly on tour where Andy's God. and Mick's. His titles were lost when Kelly was there. Though that's, so he had to put in all the hard work and he's like, he'd probably be bummed too. I think Jollibee's be pretty glad to see the back end of Kelly and take the, <laughs> take, take the title and go thanks thanks a lot um, I, I don't you know holding the holding the holding the trophy is is what you're there for and regardless you know yeah so you can Plus, never take that away he's put his eight or ten or however many years oh, yeah. on the tour against Kelly so he's put in the, he, the slugfest you know, he's uh he's surfed against Kelly for his whole career and he'd be probably glad to see the back end of him <laughs> are you do you ever root for Kelly? Like in a in a in this scenario, um, you're gonna want to say yes right about now. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> you know what? If it came down to let's say Mick versus Kelly, Kelly going for his tenth, Mick going for his second. I mean, that's a yeah. tough one. But. Well, it depends on if they're on the both on the same side of the draw, and then I've got Joel or Andy or or Geordie or someone yeah. on the other side. Then I'm gonna go. Yeah, I'm gonna go. Yeah, yeah, for um. You know, for him. So, I, I, yeah, I don't know. You, you know, so I think that um, I would really like to see Kelly win 10. Um, I think, you know, after, I mean, winning one's hard enough, but to go that far, and right. like, you know, that's, he's the, the best surfer the world's ever, ever seen and probably ever will see. Um, re, yeah. Amazing yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, we've got to take a quick break. We're going to come back and chat some more with Jason Stevenson, Australian Shaper, JS Label, the Tractor Label, JS in Studio. And uh, you're listening to Downline Surf Talk Radio, Extra Sports 1360. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Taylor Knox. Tune in to Down the Line Surf Talk Radio with Scott Bass, Jeff Baldwin on Extra Sports 1360. Which makes me laugh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you, Kyle. 
It's actually cold. I think Scott's out. handsome, not hot. <laughs> Down the line, Surf Talk Radio. Bassy Baldy with you. JS in studio. The show brought to you by Selena Cruz Surf Tours in Southern Oaxaca. www.surfing-wohaka.com. That's O-A-X-A-C-A. Surfing-wohaka.com. O-A-X-A-C-A. Check them out. They'll put you in a series of right sand bottom points. Why wouldn't you? Um, we we're talking about stand up, and 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 there's some things on Facebook here where it says ripping on a stand up is like, and then a bunch of people have chimed in with their their take on it. That's it's counter to the Billabong I surf because right. <laughs> <laughs> ripping on a stand up is like killing a spider with a bazooka, lacking precision. <laughs> ripping on a stand up is like riding a John Deere tractor at the Indy 500. <laughs> I like this is a good one. Ripping on a stand-up is like using binoculars to look for your lost car keys. Wow! So the moral of the story is nobody's ripping. Well, a lot of people think they are. That's I know. Team killing it lives everywhere. They're lacking precision. (laughs) Hey, anyway, anyway, um, get into some more JS talk. Yes, I I was interested in um, you know you have a lot of great surfers on your team: Jordy, AI, Bruce, uh, Parco, Aki, Luke, Egan. what there there must be um you know sort of a sensitive moment if you will for when you see a guy like jordy riding a board that's not your board and i know mm-hmm. this has gone on with guys like al you know um kelly's ridden some simons and this happens on yeah. tour what goes through your your thought process your heart when you see a guy maybe he's even on air he's getting interviewed after the heat and he's talking about oh this great board that's not your board how does that make you feel well, obviously probably not good but what, what goes on <laughs> um it's how I made it. <laughs> I was one of those guys. I, you know, I was probably the, one of those guys who, um, you know, th- a lot of the, obviously all of those guys rode for someone, and, and at some stage they've put a tractor under their arm and they've been doing it. So yeah. I, I don't, you know, I look at it as a challenge. I more so. I mean, Geordie's ro- ridden um, this one board that he's had for three years off L, and um, and it, it turns up. It's kind of like one of these things that come back to haunt me. It turns up in small wave venues. It's just one of those boards that, and you get those boards, you know. Like, yeah. um, I make them. I and we always try to make them, but it's that that one magic board that you know, um, it's one to two foot, and it's just it's the best thing you've ever ridden. And um, Geordie's a great example because that one board just keeps you know twice now I just, yeah. I just see it over the years it pops up I never see this thing and then all of a sudden it lives in the it's, bag it's, somewhere it's at like the US Open or and it turns up in, a, in an event and I'm like damn but Jordy um, puts it in the closet when you come over he's uh, like that board's not here yeah because I, I, I'm like I was like is that a new one he's like no no it's that same board and I'm like checking it out but I'm um, I'm just yeah I uh you know what it just all it does is make me try harder yeah I, I'm, I'm that's why i'm here you know i see that i saw that board that you just opened and i'm like straight over here and i'm like going you know what i'm gonna have to make a board that goes in crap waves like that you know yeah. so or, or or yeah we talk about this a bit with certain shapers that shaper to surfer relationship which it seems like you have a really good thing going with your guys not yep. many of them ever get boards from other guys yep. and even during the event parko or uh, andy gave some shout outs like oh js text yep. me saying hey make sure you use the right fins yep. so like they're really trusting your instinct yep. with your boards and listening yeah well I've, I've developed you know surf with them hang out i think i mean there's one thing that i can understand if, if you can't or don't surf 
how can you make boards for these guys and and how, or how do you make boards for kind of anyone and i mean computers and 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 that's you know what goes on now in in shaping is probably cut it out cut out a lot because you can go and measure up as someone's surfboard i mean I, I think there's guys even now who are just going yeah i've got js files or i got this and that and they they've just measured up some boards and so it can make it kind of easier you know but realistically you when you surf and you you know and that that's I think it's Billabong, only a surfer knows the feeling. You, you do need that. Um, when they're talking to you and, and you've got to translate what they're saying, you, I don't know how a lot of people can do it. Right. Um, but these guys, you know, they trust me. I surf with them. Um, I surf all around the world with them. I hang out with them. Um, I know, you know, a, a fair bit about them. And, and when it comes to, you know, like the fins and, you know, we're all on this, I've been, these guys are riding fins now. Um, removable fin systems and I've been making they're, they're just writing all their templates that I've ever designed and developed for them but now in a, in a removable system and talk about the because that's a new project that you're working yeah, on yeah um, we I've built uh, the brand's kinetic racing um, and it's it's basically all the stuff that I've worked on for the last 15 years with each of these guys I've you know these guys have surfed for me for a long time so um, they all have their own template Luke Hock and all of them have their own own style of fin and which has made their boards I mean Andy Andy's fin you know won him he had boards that won him more titles and, and stuff like that so there's a lot of trust there and 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 those guys all of those guys would never ever ride removable systems. yeah and so that's the thing so you had all their templates through sores fins the yeah. glass ons well I, I would i would create a you know create a template and outline based on you know a, there's back then you're you know you're writing a lot of bigger oversized fins like when my start of my career and and i've just gone through and and hand foiled or hand sanded or cut down and started altering all this stuff and or refoiled and and from that have gotten some really all of a sudden i got these all these great boards because i'm thinking you know it's not just about yeah. a board it's fins too and they, they play such a an important role and um you know after all the years of development i've got all their stuff i've translated it all into you know a removable the removable systems that are available um and now these guys are using them and they're confident yeah and but also they 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 ride a board and they'll go you know what it 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 needs to do this, and I go. Well, why don't you try try this? Try loops. Try upsizing. Try downsizing. Um, try mixing it. You know. Yeah. Um, Parko's riding. Got riding his his template in the front and an ox in the back, and Andy's riding ox in the front and a Parko in the back, and and then Andy just won Chopu riding LE fins. Yeah, Luke Egan fins. Luke Luke's fins. So, oh. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you know, you've got this this uh you know yeah it is where it is man exciting stuff fair dinkum dinkum. uh (laughs) that signals the end of our show we appreciate very much jason stevenson from js surfboards being in studio now to order a board you can go i think can you go to jsindustries.com and order a board go to jsindustries.com it'll direct you to a retailer i mean what big supposed retailers it'll it'll send you to a retailer and if if someone doesn't have them then uh talk to us and we'll work it out all right. And the fins in stores soon. Um, fins are all going through stores now. So kineticracing.com. Yeah, kineticracing.co. Kineticracing.co.com. Yep. And um, just Google kinetic racing fins, and I'm looking at them right now. And, and uh, I'm going to order four or five boards and seven or eight sets of fins. So it's, <laughs> it's not going to be much of an order for me. But <laughs> <laughs> It'll get you, boy. Uh, as long as the wife isn't listening, it's all good. Um, anyway, Jason, thanks again. Yep, thanks, guys. For Bassy and Baldy, until next week.
Oh, that's right. You'll be uh, gone. Adios. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, bro. See ya. is KLSD San Diego's place to talk baseball Extra Sports